Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Prayers of King David, with a message titled, The Blameless Person. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 15 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The idea that a man or woman might come for worship of the one true God only to find that the one true God does not welcome him or her. I mean, that idea is foreign to many. I mean, if we pray, won't we be welcomed before God? Well, Jesus said something very different. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, he spoke this very thing. Matthew 5, 23 to 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So here's the scenario. A man's going to the temple to offer the sacrifice that the law requires. Outwardly, he's obedient to the law, but something is amiss. He's at odds with his brother. He refuses to be reconciled. In this case, we have to assume that it was his power to be reconciled. And I mention this because it's not always in our power to be reconciled. But if it is, and we still refuse to take this pathway, you know, if I'm to understand Jesus rightly, we must not pretend that we're obedient to God by going to worship as is required and still refusing to take steps that might heal that which was now broken. No, no, says Jesus, don't assume that God accepts your offering, forgiving your sins when you will not forgive your brother. So there are then attitudes of the heart that need to be addressed when we approach God in worship. Worship demands we deal with sin. If we will not do so, we'll find all outward rituals to be of no value. Psalm 15 is a psalm of David, and there can be no doubt that this psalm was written after David captured the Jebusite city of Jerusalem and made it the capital of Israel. Now, most of us, when we think of David in Jerusalem and the matter of worship, might remember two very important events in David's life. The first of these is when David brings the ark of God into the city, which sets him into a joyful expression of praise to God. And the second event is when David makes the decision to replace the tabernacle, the tent of worship, with a temple, a grand stone and wooden structure, a structure that was to be greater than all of the other structures in Israel. There, first in the tabernacle, and then later under Solomon, the temple. All Israel was commanded to come to the place that God had chosen and to offer up sacrifices and celebrate the Lord's festival. In Psalm 15, David's not denying that all Israel has to come to the tabernacle. They're supposed to come. The law commanded them to do so. But they're also to approach the place of worship, as David would say in Psalm 24, with clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 15 is not a denial of the law. The law set forth the requirements of sacrifice and indicated which sacrifices were acceptable to God. In the New Testament, we see that the sacrifices in the temple are fulfilled in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, the perfect sacrifice that was once and for all, and it ended the temple ritual. And since that is true, we might wonder how Psalm 15 is still relevant, but it is. For even while Christ's once-for-all sacrifice opened the door for all who trust in him to enter into the throne room of God, Psalm 15 has a great deal to say about the person who will abide there, or the person who will sojourn there, or the person who will remain there. For if we claim that we come to God through the blood of Christ, 
but care very little about the nature of the redeemed heart, we will not remain there. Well, let's read Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Notice the very first verse again. You know, it's the introduction to the psalm. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? That's the question. You know, it's not a question, as I've said, as to who's permitted to come to the tabernacle and worship. As I've said, the law demanded all Israel to do that. Rather, this is a question of the internal state of affairs in the worshiper. This is a question of sorting out the hypocrite from the godly man or woman. This question asks, what are the marks of godly worshipers, as opposed to people who merely perform their religious duties but are rejected? Let's put it another way. What if we ask God, of whom, O Lord, do you approve? Now, at the outset, it seems as if, as we read verse 1, that it seems to assume that the person in question is taking up permanent residence in the tabernacle. That's behind the word sojourn. You know, in ancient Israel, a sojourner, that was someone who came from a distant country and had taken up temporary residence in Israel. That might mean they stayed in Israel for a long time. The sojourner was the foreigner who had come to stay. So in that sense, if we understand the term that way, the question is being asked, who's permitted to stay in God's presence and who's always welcome there? And notice that the question is not asked of the priests or of the king, but the question is asked of God. I have journeyed to your tabernacle to worship. God, when you look at me, do you welcome me? Do you open up your arms for me, telling me I belong here, and how can I know? And with that, we come to the general answer. And then after the general answer has been given, we have four specific, very particular answers. So let's listen to the general answer first. Lord, who's always welcome in your presence. And the answer comes in verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Notice the three parts of the one answer. The person who's welcome in God's presence is the person who walks blamelessly. Now to walk, that's a symbol of living life. The person whose lifestyle patterns are blameless. Notice, at first glance, that would appear that the answer is, well, the person who's perfect. And in truth, that is what the word signifies. But to be blameless, and that term is often used to describe the people of the Bible. Noah, we are told, was blameless in his generation. Abram is told by God that he's required to walk before God, that is, to live out your life fully under God's watchful eye. And then he is told, be blameless. In Deuteronomy 18, all Israel is commanded to be blameless. Now, again, that seems to indicate that perfection is required. However, if we read through the Old Testament, we find that the word is not used quite that way. So, for instance, 2 Samuel 22. It's a song of David, a song which he wrote and sang at the end of his life when God had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. And in verse 24, David sings, I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. Now, we might respond to that and say, now, now, wait a minute, David, you seem to have a very short memory. What about your sins, especially the sins with Uriah and Bathsheba? 
So since we assume that David didn't have a short memory, we're well served to ask how the word blameless is being used. And one commentator said that blameless signifies completeness of moral conduct, that is, a many-sided, well-rounded pattern of living that leaves no important area uncultivated. That is to say, it is to live so that one is willing for God to correct everything that's wrong in one's life. And the opposite is the hypocrite. That's the person who hides his or her sins and covers them up, who uses deceit to keep their true identity from showing. And what I mean to say is this, Psalm 15 is not saying that God only accepts perfect people. Rather, God demands that all who approach him do so with transparency and with submission, a willingness to repent of all known sins, a willingness to submit to God's transformation in every single area of their lives. Blameless conduct is conduct lived before God in such a way that our attitudes and actions are placed under his will. And that's why in verse 2, David David is quick to add the word blameless to other descriptors of what blameless looks like. The blameless person does what is right. If repentance is required, the blameless person admits their sins, doesn't blame others, but rather takes ownership of them and seeks forgiveness. To do what's right is not to avoid God's commands, but to seek to do them. That's blameless. And then David adds the person speaks truth in his heart. Notice the truth is spoken in the heart. Of course, the blameless person speaks truth with the mouth, but David emphasizes the heart because the heart is the control mechanism for everything. The emotions, the will, the intellect, everything. That is, the blameless person does not lie either about himself or herself, nor about others, nor about the commands of God, nor about his or her culpability before God. The blameless person prefers the truth, even if the truth is painful and humbling, but his heart fastens itself onto the truth and holds it there. That, says the psalm, is the description of the person who always finds himself or herself acceptable before God. And again, the background is that the person has come to the temple to offer sacrifices. And in the New Testament context, the person has found peace with God through the one sacrifice of Jesus. But one can't claim to be in covenant and keep harboring deceit in our hearts. Christ demands that his followers live blamelessly. It's no secret that in today's society, we're inundated with a chorus of voices trying to shape our lives. They seek to influence our purchases, entertainment, political stance, moral standards, and daily activities. And if we try to bend to them all, we'll lead diffused, dizzy lives. So who is the umpire of life? Well, God is. His voice matters above all others. And Back to the Bible Canada exists to emphasize the centrality of God's voice, God's Word. That is why this month we're offering a booklet by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. This booklet does not promote defiance or apathy, but is a call to humbly submit to the voice of God. So to request your free copy today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate because supplies are limited. (music) 
It's one thing to speak in generalities. It's quite another to speak in specifics. It's one thing to say, I commit to walk blamelessly before God. I I know I'll not be perfect and I know I'm going to sin, but I will repent when I do. And I will ask God to examine my ways to see if there is any wicked way in me. I commit to submitting to the one who created and redeemed me. I'll keep short accounts with God. When I stumble in sin, I'll come to the one who's gracious and merciful, whose love for me in the cross of his son has redeemed me. I'll confess my sins. I'll ask the Holy Spirit to renew me so that I'll walk in the power of the Spirit and not according to the dictates of the flesh. And to commit all these things to God is necessary. It's good, but still the human heart in order to live according to the Spirit, needs everyday practical examples as to how to do that. And for those of us who ask what's practical, Psalm 15 provides four very specific concrete examples. Since we're told that those who sojourn in your tent are those who walk blamelessly, well, David provides us with four examples of blameless conduct. Now, the first of the four has to do with how we treat others. Let's review this in verse 3 who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against his friend. We notice that the three negatives here have to do with the harm that can be done to a neighbor or a friend, that is, someone who trusts us. David knew about this. You know, in Psalm 41, verse 9, he speaks of a close friend, the friend in whom he had trusted, the one who ate his bread, or to put it another way, the one who sat at his table and shared fellowship and counsel together, this one had lifted up, said David, his heel against him, that is, had acted in a way that showed utter contempt for David. (laughs) I can say this about my own ministry. I was never deeply wounded by criticism from those who didn't like me. I was wounded by people who pretended to share friendship and then did me harm. Those wounds have remained to this day. Notice again verse 3. Those who are welcome in God's presence do not slander with their tongue. To slander is to spread stories that are negative. The slander repeats the negative. You can tell if you're a slanderer. Here's the test. Do you have something critical to say? Have you said that to the person himself or herself, or have you said it to others? If you said it to others, God's deeply displeased in you. He calls it slander. It's to spread stories, negative ones, that are meant to harm, to degrade someone before others. Those stories are incredibly effective, and that's why we do them. They cause everything from the ruin of friendship to someone who's fired at work to someone who's divorced. But the slanderer often responds by saying, ah, but the story was true. Again, I ask you, my dear slanderer, have you spoken to the person in question about this, or did you speak to others first? Listen to Leviticus 19.16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor, I am the Lord. I think this is why, after speaking against slander, Psalm 15 mentions the person who does evil to his neighbor. And then finally, David mentions taking reproach against a friend. To take reproach is to say anything at all that might defame someone's character. It is that the criticism that is offered in the company of others is done so by the person who professes friendship to the person they're slandering. This is something about friendship. It demands loyalty. Proverbs 18.24 says, A friend sticks closer than a brother. Indeed, that's one of the ways you can test if someone really is your friend. When you're not around, does that friend join in with others to criticize you? And if so, know this, that person never was your friend. See, at the outset, blameless character is the kind of character that does not harm his neighbor. 
If he will not love those whom he has seen, says 1 John 4 verse 20, he can't claim to love God whom he's not seen. And so one way to judge blamelessly walking before God is to examine what comes out of our mouths when we speak of others, even our friends. But then David moves to another practical example of the one who walks blamelessly. The blameless person knows whom to reject and knows whom to honor. Look, we all reject some people and honor others. You know, some honor the wealthy or the famous and reject the person who is poor or has little influence. And you can tell a great deal about who a person is by the kind of person that they honor. Let's look again at the first part of verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. How can you tell a vile person or who is a vile person? Or what are the characteristics of a vile person? And the answer is obvious. The vile person is the persistent evildoer. It's the person who repeatedly breaks the laws of God and does so without repentance and without remorse. Now, I say that because in the context of our passage, the vile person is contrasted to the person who fears God. See, the person who fears God, well, that's the person who regards the words of God and his commands as well as his promises with great respect. The vile person despises all of these. In short, the person who is welcome in God's presence is the person who values the things that God values and who rejects the things God rejects. Someone's going to object here. Are we called to love all people? The answer is, of course, yes, we are. But that doesn't mean we're gullible or willing to be led by those who reject the ways of God. Godly people make distinctions between those people who would lead people away from God and those people who would lead them in the direction of God. Let's now move to the third example of the blameless man or woman. And that example is taken up in one line in verse 4. It simply describes this person as the one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, that verse is very precious to me personally because I have a memory that goes back to my early 20s. I was then taking part in a ministry assignment in another country. We were given some free time, and we all agreed on what time we would be back and meet again as a group, and I arrived late. The whole group was waiting for me, and I apologized and said, sorry, I was having such a good time, I I guess I lost track of the time. And our team leader in front of everyone else took me to this very passage, Psalm 15, verse 4. The blameless man, he said, was someone, when he made a commitment, kept that commitment, even when it was inconvenient or when it caused pain or for any other reason, godly men keep their word. Oh, that was a sharp rebuke, and it was true, and it struck me very deeply. I realized that my behavior had shown I was not a man of my word. I was humbled. I was even humiliated, but I kept my peace. No point in saying anymore. I was guilty, and I knew it. But I also told God my leader was right. Teach me to be a man of my word. Now back to Psalm 15. The last practical example David gives of blameless behavior is the picture of someone who's not subverted by money. And oh, what an indictment this is. In this passage, David puts his finger on the weakness of so many a man or woman. Money is often more subversive and corrosive than sexual sins. How many a man or woman has grown cold in their faith or even abandoned their faith because of their love for money? So verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Let's start with lending money at interest. Now, there are a number of places in the law where lending money at interest was forbidden. 
You'll find that in Exodus 22:25, Leviticus 25:36 and following says the same, as well as Deuteronomy 23 verse 20. There Israel is commanded, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. So it seems to me that these passages do not prevent institutional interest-bearing loans, as we'd find in a modern-day bank, for example, but private loans are in view. Imagine an Old Testament scene. Your neighbor's crops fail. Now he needs to buy seed for planting. The money-centered person sees this as a way to make money off his neighbor's misery rather than seeing as a way to open up his heart to his neighbor. See, the other kind of money sin that's mentioned is the taking of a bribe. The First Testament often mentions how this activity perverts justice in courts of law. That is, money becomes a vehicle to enrich even though it brings hardship upon another. The fact is, we are our brother's keeper. God demands mercy and compassion and love and sacrificial giving, not the person who seeks his or her own interests at the expense of another. The point of these four examples is that blameless character is proved or broken in just these kinds of everyday circumstances. The prayer, then, of everyone who wants to be favored in God's presence is to say to God, no matter the circumstances, I want a blameless character. Give it to me. Show me my sin. Help me to repent. Let me walk in your paths and let me worship in your presence. And lead, let's seek no greater value than to be pleasing to our God so that when we bow the knee before him or lift our voices and sing or listen to the word preached, that our hearts would yearn to be blameless. And let's also confess that Christ was blameless for us. And let's lean hard on his righteousness and let's pray that the Lord our God would give to us the same attitude that we find in Jesus. May the Lord bless you. Thanks for your message, John. I'm trying to think how to phrase this question, but here it goes. Should we be simply satisfied with confession of our sin, or is there more? Well, certainly we need to confess our sins, so I think we want to say that, and... uh, and, and I think there's more, and that is we need to be praying constantly that God would give us a new heart attitude, that we would love him, and uh, that we would seek to you know, live blamelessly, as David says here, saying to God, I'm not satisfied to continue to repeat the same sins over and over again. I rather want to be the kind of person who lives with integrity in this world that honors you in all my dealings, whether I speak with somebody or you know, how I use money or all these other things, that all of this can be done to the glory of God. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Prayers of King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Did you know that Back to the Bible Canada has a great library of resources available to you at no cost? Visit backtothebible.ca and discover inspiring articles and blogs from Dr. John Newfeld and friends. Take the opportunity to sign up for our bi-monthly free Truth in Life magazine, featuring engaging and thoughtful writings from Dr. John, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and guest authors discussing critical themes of faith. There's so much more to discover. Search the free library of audio and video programs and learn about our mobile app and podcasts. Our desire is to make Bible teaching you can trust 
available in every way possible to every person possible without barrier. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.